So I thought we'd start this afternoon with half an hour sitting, but I'm just interested. Is there anybody here who has not done any meditation? Okay, so I'll, 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 I'll give a little guidance uh, for the sitting, so this will be a good introduction. Uh, so sit comfortably, but not too comfortably. You know, so you want the back to be straight without being tense or stiff. Letting the eyes close gently and keeping them soft. So relaxing the eyes, relaxing the shoulders, relaxing the heart, relaxing the belly. Might begin by simply opening to all the sounds that are arising, simply being aware of sounds appearing and disappearing. mind can become very open, very spacious. Not particularly thinking about what's making the sound, but just the bare perception, simply hearing. You might notice how effortlessly each sound is known in the moment that it arises. No special effort is needed. Simply sitting and being aware. Being aware of the louder sounds, the softer ones, the sound of my voice. open space of awareness, you can become aware of the body sitting, simply aware of the body posture. You might feel the sensations of your buttocks on the cushion or the chair seat. Feeling the contact sensations of your legs and feet on the mat or the floor. Simply sit and know you're sitting.
in this space of open awareness, which you're aware of sounds, aware of your body posture, you can become aware of the sensations of your body breathing. As you breathe in, know you're breathing in. As you breathe out, know you're breathing out. It's that simple. You can begin to notice where in the body you feel the breath most distinctly, most clearly? Is it the sensations of the air passing the nostrils, the movement of the chest, the rise and fall of the abdomen? You can let the mind come to rest at that place where you feel the breath most clearly. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. Connect with the very beginning of each in-breath or rising movement and sustain the attention for just that half-breath. Connecting with the very beginning of the out-breath or the falling movement and sustain the attention for just that half-breath. Half-breath at a time. If different bodily sensations become predominant and call your attention, become mindful of those sensations, pressure, tightness, vibration, coolness, warmth. And notice what happens to the sensation as you become aware of it. Does it get stronger or weaker? Does it stay? Does it disappear? 
stay alert for the arising of thoughts or images in the mind. As soon as you become aware of a thought or image, you might make a soft mental note of thinking or seeing. Notice what happens to the thought or image in the moment of noting it. Aware of sounds, the body sitting, aware of the breath, or predominant sensations. Staying attentive to the arising of thoughts or images. Become mindful of the state of mind, the quality of mind. Is it sleepy? Is it alert? Simply to be mindful of how the mind is at this moment. Is it bored? Is it interested? Is it calm? Is it restless? These mind states, too, are arising and passing away. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. Notice the quality of wakefulness or mindfulness in that moment when you become aware that you've been lost in a thought. When the mind awakens from being lost, That's a moment of awareness.
As most of you know, um, during these last few years, there's been a kind of mindfulness revolution in this country. Uh, it's really quite amazing. Uh, it's been on the cover of Time magazine, and congressman has written a book, The Mindful Nation. And, you know, it's being taught in schools and corporations. And um, mindfulness is... Uh, really made it into the mainstream in a certain way. But one of the questions that often comes up is whether in the ways it's being taught um, contains the ethical foundation that's found in the teachings of the Buddha. In other words, the ethics of right mindfulness or whether it's being taught just as a strengthening of the ability to focus and pay attention, which is good in itself. But there's another dimension to mindfulness in these teachings uh, that seems very important to understand. So today I wanted to speak a little bit about the relationship of ethics and mindfulness and how... Uh, they interweave and they support each other and each is needed for the other. So what is ethics? I went to the source of all knowledge and I googled it. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting. It had, it had uh, quite a few different definitions exactly what ethics is. You know, so, principles of right and wrong conduct, you know, defining what is good for both the individual and for society, or ethics as being that con which contributes to the well-being of people. So the Buddha, in his teachings, I think had a very succinct uh, description of uh, both the practice and the meaning of ethics. And this is a very famous uh, summary of everything he taught. It's a verse from the Dhammapada where he says, refrain from the unwholesome, refrain from what's unskillful, do what is good, and purify the mind. So it's quite amazing. I mean, just in those few in those few lines, the whole teaching is contained. You know, avoid what is unskillful, unwholesome. Do what is good and purify the mind. So we could understand ethics in the first the first step of this as refraining from those actions which harm either ourselves or others. Refraining from doing harm. So that would be uh, quite a transforming principle if everyone on this planet would simply follow that suggestion, refrain from doing harm to oneself or others. Then it gets interesting to see, to examine, well, where do harmful actions come from? You know, what, what's the, what are the forces in the mind 
that lead us to do harmful things, whether for ourselves or towards others. And again, the teachings, the Buddhist teachings are just so crystal clear and to the point. You know, the Buddha described how all harmful actions are rooted in the mind forces, the mind habit patterns of either greed or hatred or delusion. So these are the, these are the three unwholesome roots. And so what is greed? You know, I think we all have had the experience of it. You know, it's, it's that strong wanting or stickiness in the mind, a strong craving or clinging. Somebody described greed as Velcro mind, you know, where it just sticks to the object and all the various manifestations of greed. And hatred, the, the word is very strong, but it really covers a wide range of mind states that we're all familiar with. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be extreme hatred. It includes mind states of just aversion and not liking and annoyance and irritation and fear. You know, all of these are forms of aversion which become the root of unwholesome actions. And then there's delusion. And delusion, uh, it's interesting to explore a little bit it means being unaware. And so just in the sitting, you probably had many moments of being lost in a thought right, where, where we don't know that we're thinking, we're just being carried away on that train of association. So in those moments, the mind is deluded. It does not know what the present moment experience is. So one meaning of delusion is simply unawareness of what's arising, you know, un unawareness of the present moment experience. But it also means something else. It, it also means unawareness of what is skillful and what is unskillful. You know, where we don't distinguish between these, those two, we don't even investigate. And this is um, a really important point to understand because we're often in a state of delusion, not knowing we're deluded. You know, and so we're kind of living it out. And I'll just give you a few examples of how we often mistake or confuse what is unwholesome with what is wholesome. I mean, you'd think especially, you know, those of us who have been practicing for some time, oh, I know what's skillful, I know what's unskillful, even if I don't always follow it, you know, we think we know. But often, in a state of delusion, we are confusing the two. So, for example, desire or greed, especially in our culture, in our consumer culture, is often taken to be a good thing. You know, how, how much internet spam, in one way or another, is encouraging us to increase your desire. And then it you know, gives various suggestions of how we might do that, as if increasing our desire is a good thing. Some time ago, I was, just walk I was in New York and walking down one of the streets, and I passed a store window, 
and there was a sign in the window that said, don't let desire pass you by. (laughs) And then sometimes we confuse anger. You know, we take anger to be a good thing at different times. And it's often, um, you know, in response to something maybe that we feel is wrong, you know, or something that shouldn't be happening, and we get angry, or there's some kind of interpersonal conflict, and we get angry. And again, the Buddha pointed to something very uh, clear about the nature of anger. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. You know, because there's a honeyed tip in our experience of anger. Very often, first of all, it's very energizing. You know, so anger often makes us feel really alive and powerful. And and it's often associated with that feeling of being right or self-righteousness, especially when it's in response to something we perceive as being wrong. And so we can get seduced by the honeyed tip of anger and not really see or investigate what the Buddha called its poison source because underneath whatever feeling of satisfaction we may have in that feeling, when the mind is filled with anger, it basically wants to do harm you know, to whatever the object of our anger is. Now, people often, you know, will think or will say, well, aren't there times when it's appropriate to get angry, you know, in the face of injustice? Uh, Isn't that a wholesome response, a good response? I had sort of an interesting exploration of this. Uh, This many years ago, I was teaching uh, environmental retreats, retreats for environmental activists. This was at a wilderness ranch out in New Mexico. And these were people in the front line of social action, you know, really responding in a whole wide uh, range of arenas to you know, organizations or corporations or people who were doing harmful things. So they were, they were right there in the front line of social environmental action. And one of the... One of the problems that came up in the course of these retreats that many of these people were learning to deal with was burnout. You know, that they, they had you know, strong feelings about what they were doing and the rightness of what they were doing, but they found they were unable to sustain that energy. And it was very interesting in the course of the retreats to explore what was the cause of burnout. And in many cases, it's because the actions that they were taking and involved in, in in many good causes, were fueled by anger. And anger is not sustainable. Anger burns us up. And even in English, we say somebody's burning burning with anger. So it's not a sustainable motivation. It's harming us, even as we're you know, responding to uh, 
things that need a response to. So in the course of these retreats, we really began to explore other possible motivations for engaged action. You know, so it's, it's coming out of the delusion that, oh, in this case, anger is good, and saying, well, even though it is giving us energy for these kinds of appropriate responses, it's not a wholesome state within ourselves. And it became clear that a much more wholesome motivation for engaged action, you know, in the face of injustice of many kinds or environmental degradation or whatever, whatever arena we're working with, a much more sustainable motivation is out of compassion. You know, we can have compassion for the suffering that's being caused. Suffering for the people who are victimized by the actions, suffering for the people perpetuating, compassion for the people who are perpetuating the action. And to see that harm, harmful actions, always comes out of ignorance. There's an interesting story of Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, as the pro-democracy leader in Burma. And as you know, most of you know, she was under house arrest for... I don't know, 15 years, 18 years. Um, when she finally was released, and now she's, she's active, you know, and she, she's free uh, in Burma. But she, there was some uh, interview with an Australian journalist, and they were asking her, you know, in terms of her response to the generals who were, who were running the government and who kept her under house arrest, uh, don't you want to bring them down? And she said, no, I want to bring them up. You know, so that's, that's a very different motivation. So in understanding delusion, we want to really learn to discern clearly what the difference is between skillful and unskillful. And this, this can also take a very counterintuitive uh, manifestation. When I read, when I first came across this teaching, kind of just made me really ponder it for a bit because it was so counterintuitive. You know, where the, it says that it's better to do an unskillful action knowing it's unskillful than to do it not knowing it's unskillful. And this, again, it's, it was a reminder that we often confuse or can confuse delusion with being wholesome. We think, oh, if we're doing something that's not so great, but we don't know that it's not good, that, that somehow makes it better. You know, that we're acting out of ignorance. But actually, the ignorance is just compounding the unskillfulness of the action itself. Because if we don't know, if we haven't discerned that difference, there's no possibility of refraining from it in the future because we don't even know that it's an unskillful action. And so even as we engage in things that are unwholesome, which we all do, for, unless you're a saint, you know, there are moments and actions that are motivated by greed or, or anger or hatred or fear. Or... But it's much better 
to have the awareness and the discernment. Yeah, I'm doing it. This, you know, this habit is acting itself out, but I know, I know it's unskillful. In that way, there's a there's a seed of wisdom there, you know, and it creates the possibility for okay, sometime in the future, maybe that wisdom will grow a little stronger, and I'll refrain from this action. So again, this discernment and refining our discernment of what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, is a very important part of. Uh, understanding the relationship of ethics and mindfulness. You know, mindfulness is the translation in English of the Pali word sati, S-A-T-I, which means to remember. That's, that's the root meaning of the word. So it means to remember a couple of things. Mindfulness means remembering what is wholesome and unwholesome. So calling that to mind. Even though it seems obvious in a certain way, um, I think we could do it more often than we do. You know, just reminding ourselves. Oh yeah, actions actions motivated by greed or by anger or hatred or delusion. These are unwholesome. Or those motivated by generosity or love or wisdom. These are wholesome. So we really, really start. Uh, rehabituating our minds, our hearts. So mindfulness, remembering means remembering what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. It also, of course, means remembering what's arising in the present moment. You know, so not forgetting. So, for example, when we're lost in a thought, you know, we're, we're not remembering the present moment experience. And in the moment of awakening from being lost, oh yeah, we're, we're back. You know, we're, we're remembering what's arising in the moment. In all of this, and this I think is true of all the teachings of the Buddha, and it's, it's really one of the things that um, so motivated my own interest from the very beginning is that none of this and all the other teachings as well it's not simply a question of hearing it you know, neither believing it or not believing it it's all a question of looking for ourselves so we have to investigate for ourselves what are the mind states that lead to greater peace and happiness what are the mind states that lead to more suffering for ourselves or others. So we have to internalize or we have to integrate experientially the meaning of these teachings. In order to do that, we need to be mindful. We need to be mindful when these states arise, both the wholesome ones and the unwholesome ones. We actually need to be paying attention in a moment of greed or in a moment of generosity what does it feel like? What is it doing? You know, both to us and to whoever we're engaged with. So we're actually learning it for ourselves. It's not just you know, hearing something that, as I say, we either agree with or don't agree with. 
we're testing, we're testing the teaching for ourselves. And that's what is transformative. You know, when we really uh, have had direct experience you know, of the truth of this. So we see how mindfulness actually is provides the pivotal place or it's the pivotal moment in our experience um, for strengthening our ethical framework. Because if we're not being mindful, that is remembering what's skillful or unskillful and remembering what's arising in the moment, if we're not mindful, then basically we're simply acting out the conditioned habit patterns of our minds and our hearts. You know, and some, some is good and some is not so good, but there's no possibility there for discernment or change because we're not being mindful of what's happening in the moment. So mindfulness plays this critical, pivotal role in strengthening our inner moral compass. I think one of the most seductive um, how to say one of the most seductive places we uh, we miss is probably most of us think of ourselves as basically moral, ethical people. You know, and it's... Anybody not? <laughs> Any evil being here? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we, we, I think we're drawn to the Dharma, you know, because of, we, we feel that, you know, we're, we're on the right side of things. But this belief has a downside because it can make us complacent. You know, it's, we may be basically ethical, moral people, but that doesn't mean that we're free of greed and hatred and delusion and that these forces and these motivations will come up many times in the course of a day, in the course of our lives. And so if we, if we understand that, then being mindful takes on a certain, uh, compelling urgency if we're committed to non-harming you know if we if we understand the value of non-harming as being the basis of ethical behavior then it's incumbent on us to really pay attention you know whether it's paying attention to the kinds of thoughts that are arising the patterns of thoughts that we have whether it's paying attention and this is a huge area which is a fantastic arena of practice to our speech you know, we, we talk a lot in the course of a day. How often are we really examining the motive behind our speech? Probably not that often. You know, it's, at least in my experiences, you know, we're in conversations in various situations, and the words just seem to come tumbling out. So I'll give you just one example, basically of deluded speech which 
is very common. So again, most of you probably know the Buddha talked about different kinds of wrong speech, not you know, not harsh or angry or lying. But the one that, that I really love to work with is that whole arena of what he called useless speech. And the, the word in Pali, it, it's kind of, it's anamanapiya because the word sounds just like what it is. So the Pali word is sampapalapa. <laughs> I love that word. <laughs> sampapalapa. And it's just so interesting for me, and I think it would be for all of us, just to watch the many times when we sampapalap. <laughs> you know, it can be just hanging out with friends. Just, you know, in a relaxed, easy way. And so often I will see arising in my mind the urge just to say something that is completely useless. <laughs> that it has no... No value, no meaning at all. It, it's, basically, it's basically a way of saying, here I am. And it's just so interesting for me to watch these thoughts and comments arise in the mind, the urge you know, to speak them. And sometimes I will, and sometimes I won't. But it always feels good in that moment, you know, in those moments when I'm really being mindful and say, this is just deluded mind, <laughs> you know. And I actually, through that mindfulness, can refrain from that unskillful action. It always feels energizing and empowering in, in a small way, you know, but it's like one of life's little victories over Mara. You know, it's like, ah, Mara, I caught you. <laughs> yeah. So this is... It, it's mindfulness in all the arenas of our lives, you know, in, in terms of mindfulness of our thoughts, mindfulness of our speech, mindfulness of our actions. That's what enables us to actually strengthen our ethical, uh, our integrity in ethics. So it's not something, you know, that we can think, oh yeah, I, I'm ethical, and then stop thinking about it. This is an ongoing practice. This, uh, there's, there's room for huge improvement, I think, in all of us, you know, for refining and becoming impeccable. So it's inspiring. Right? It's inspiring to me to, to work on that. So mindfulness is key to strengthening our ethics. It also works the other way. Ethics and an ethical behavior is essential for the practice of mindfulness. And so this, this is a piece also that I wonder if it's being conveyed, you know, as mindfulness is being taught in, in so many different arenas. Because the commitment to non-harming and the practice you know, of non-harming in all these ways, leads to non-remorse. If we're not doing harmful things, then our mind is not filled with remorse about having done unskillful things. And non-remorse leads to the ability to concentrate, because the mind is not agitated by the remorse. 
it leads to happiness. You know, when, when we're not agitated by remorse about what we've done, we just are living our lives and abiding in a much more peaceful place. When the mind is not agitated, it's actually able to be mindful. You know, and so the ethics, the practice of ethics, actually makes possible the deepening of mindfulness. So do you see how they're just supporting each other? So how can, how can we just undertake you know, the practice of ethics as a support for mindfulness? It's you know, pretty straightforward, and I'm sure all of you are familiar you know, with the Buddhist teachings, just taking the basic five precepts for lay people. You know, we take the precept to refrain from killing or stealing or sexual misconduct, you know, or wrong speech or, you know, taking things which just confuse the mind. The precepts themselves, each one of them, is a powerful practice. You know, and each one of them uh, can be refined. I've just found, you know, having taken the precepts many times, formally and then reflecting on them at different times, they really act as a mindfulness bell in the course of our lives. You know, we can be about, we can be about to say something or do something, and if, it's, if it will be breaking one of the precepts, having taken them, it's almost like a, a mindfulness bell goes off, you know. You're about to swat the mosquito. No, I took a precept not to kill. You know, and if the mindfulness is strong enough at that point, oh, oh no, I can brush it aside. I don't, have to, I don't have to squash it. You know, or we're about to say something that's unkind. Oh no, I took a precept about right speech. So, the practice, the the practice of ethics in the form of the precepts actually strengthens our mindfulness. You know, it wakes us up in those moments. This is essential. You know, we're all come here today, you know, in, in this community of people interested in and practicing the Dharma. Understanding the fundamental importance of ethical behavior, of non-harming, to our meditative practice. This is essential. Now, when my first teacher, Munindraji, when he first came to visit us in the States, this was back probably in the 70s, uh, you know, and there was just, there was a lot of enthusiasm, although it was among a much smaller group of people at that time, but a lot of enthusiasm for meditation and awakening and enlightenment and, you know, we're all kind of enlightenment or bust. <laughs> and Munindra, in just, you know, being, you know, in America and traveling around, he made a very astute observation because at that time we weren't talking that much about the precepts and about ethical behavior. It was just meditate, meditate, meditate. And he said, undertaking a spiritual practice 
without an ethical foundation is like being in a boat trying to cross the river without untying the boat from the dock. And we can put forth all of this effort, but without that ethical foundation for our efforts, we're not going to go anyplace. It's, it's not going to be on with leading. So I think for all of us, you know, committed to a spiritual practice, the practice of awakening, you know, on whatever level, it's just important to reflect on this interplay between ethics and mindfulness. So there's one more aspect I'd like to touch upon. And that is mindfulness as a purifying process. So as we're practicing the awareness, and those of you who have meditated for a while, and especially if you've been on retreats, you probably have experienced the fact that as we're sitting, many of our past unwholesome actions come to mind. You know, it's like we start reliving many of the unwholesome or harmful things that we've done. And so this is natural. But it's very important to understand this process of purification in a skillful way. Because these are going to come up. You know, we've all, all of us have done many unskillful things. You know, we're not saints, we're not completely free of greed, hatred, delusion. And so in the course of our lives, you know, in many different ways we've caused harm, either to ourselves or to others. As our mind gets quieter in meditation, as we become more mindful, more still, more spacious, these memories come, and I've had many vivid memories of things, you know, that I would rather not have done, but which I did. So it's very important at this point to understand the difference between guilt and wise remorse. Because it's very easy for people in reliving, you know, the the harmful things that we've done to fall into the trap of feeling guilty about it. And I remember one retreat I was on where, again, something I had done was coming to mind very vividly, and I was feeling very guilty. But because I was on retreat, and I have, I have uh, an investigative mind, sometimes too investigative. Uh, so, you know, I was feeling all this guilt, and it didn't, the guilt itself didn't feel good. It was suffering. It was, it was a state of suffering. So I started investigating, okay, well, what's, you know, what's the nature of guilt? And is it, is it a good thing or not a good thing? And I began to see that this feeling of guilt is itself unwholesome. It's basically an ego trip in a negative way. You know, it's reinforcing the sense of self, but I'm so bad, right? But it's, it's, strengthening that feeling of I, that feeling of self, as I say, in, an, in a negative way. So I really, I really began to see guilt as 
a trick of Mara, you know, Mara, the embodiment of delusion, because we think it's justified. We, we actually did something wrong or unskillful. So we think, oh, well, I should feel guilty. But that's, that's the deluded mind. We're being seduced by Mara. And I began to see very clearly the difference between guilt and wise remorse. Because in the awareness of our breaches of ethical behavior, you know, when we have done harm, it's important that we see it and it's important that we understand it, understand that it was unskillful, take responsibility for it. But this feeling of wise remorse is very different than guilt because it's suffused with wisdom, with understanding. It's suffused with forgiveness. You know, we don't have to be self-lacerating when we see the unskillful things we've done. We want to learn from them. We're, oh yeah, this, this was the cause of suffering. I see that. I understand that. Can I practice or try to refrain from that in the future? You know, and so we're understanding the impermanence of it all and the wise remorse is, is really, it's a kind of compassion for ourselves, for the other person. It's a very different feeling than guilt. So when we understand this difference and can practice in this way, then mindfulness, based on our commitment to non-harming, becomes a path of purification. You know, all these past experiences may come to mind and we see them, we're not defensive, we open to them, we understand them, and we can let them go. And I've had this experience many, many times about many things. You know, so I've really understood, yes, we can actually purify the mind of past unwholesome actions. And the mind gets lighter. You know, we're actually letting go of stuff that we've been holding. And sometimes... I think of enlightenment as just the mind getting lighter, lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter until it's enlightened. You know? uh, so this is just another important interplay of understanding ethical behavior and mindfulness and it all being part of a path of purification. Okay, a few more things. I can go on and on and on. Okay, so this was about wise relating to past unwholesome actions. How can we practice refraining from actions going forward? Understanding, you know, the ethical nature, you know, of our aspirations. So, as I mentioned, taking the precepts and working with them and really exploring how can, how can I refine you know, my practice of the precepts? This, this becomes a powerful practice for refraining from future you know, unskillful actions. And judging from my own experience, it's not going to be perfect. You know, because the forces of greed and hatred, delusion, they are deeply rooted in the mind. And even as we're walking on the path, many times we'll be seduced by them. But we can be practicing with them. 
and taking the precepts is one way, you know, and, and exploring them more deeply. There's one teaching from the Buddhist psychology which I found very uh, kind of fascinating in terms of understanding why we get seduced by unwholesome motivations. And that is, this is from the Buddhist psychology, and it says that in every unwholesome mind state, which, you know, causes us to act in unskillful ways, there are always four particular mental qualities that are present. So that was, that, just that was an interesting analysis to me. In every unwholesome mind state and action, there are always four mental factors, that's Buddhist jargon for, for qualities of mind, that are present. So one is delusion, and again, that means not calling to mind what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. In the moment when we're doing something un- unskillful, we're not remembering. Right? And so delusion is always present. Restlessness, and this was really interesting to me, because in watching when I might be you know, caught up in some greedy thing, or that's more my thing than anger, but you know, whatever, whatever your particular defilement of choice is, <laughs> you know, whether it's more on the greedy side or the angry side. Or, uh, in each of those moments, there's always a restlessness of mind. So, I don't know, I, f- I found that really interesting. And then to observe, you know, oh yeah, when I'm wanting to do something that's, you know, it's not, it's not that skillful, you know, based on a kind of greed, to look back in mind and say, oh yeah, the mind is a bit restless now. And that's why it's getting seduced by the greed. You know? And so, so then the restlessness can become a... Um, it's both a feedback and it can, it can be an mindfulness of it can be an ally in refraining. You know, if we, rec- oh yeah, the mind is restless now, instead of going for that action, maybe I just need to settle back and get a little more composed. So there's delusion, there's restlessness, and then there are two qualities of mind that are very hard to translate into English and are often misunderstood. In the Pali words are hiri and otapa. And they're usually translated as moral shame and moral dread. So in English, it's first hard, it's a little hard to understand even what that means, and those words often don't resonate. But they're, they're pointing to a very power, powerful qualities in the mind. The Buddha actually called these two mind states, hiri otapa, the guardians of the world. They are the protectors of the world. So what's translated here, kind of moral shame, is just that kind of a sense of conscience. You know, it's, it's internally directed. It's like where we're looking at an unwholesome action that we're about to do, and if we understand that it's unwholesome and we, we know that it's unskillful, just that quality of say self-respect or conscience or or a wise shame. No, this this is not good. 
And the word shame, of course, is so problematic for many of us because it, it's often an unskillful state, you know, and people being shamed. And so our association with the word is not that great. But it would be very good just to investigate what it means in this context because it is a guardian of the world. It's a garden, guardian of our own worlds. When we reflect on that, it, it can be an ally in refraining from unwholesome action. And the other, the Uttapa, it's more externally directed. It's more that reflection on what, as it says in the text, how the wise would view these, this action. You know, so it's kind of an external reference point for us. And I found that actually quite powerful uh, when it comes into play. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But when it does, there was um, one retreat where my mind was just getting caught up in a particular fantasy that wasn't all that skillful. You know, but it was very seductive. It was a real desire, lustful fantasy. And, but I knew it was, I knew that this is not, this is not a good thing. <laughs> but I was enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried everything. I tried noting, you know, desire, desire. And, uh, but it was too, it was too seductive. But then I had the thought, if I did this action, <laughs> and since some, there are some ex-members of the IMS board here, they might appreciate this, the thought came, what if the board of directors of IMS knew about this action? <laughs> and it was amazing, just so that external reference, oh, this is not good. <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. That was like calling up reinforcements, allies. In that moment of reflection, the whole fantasy disappeared. It, I, it was so striking to me, the power of that reflection to cut through the seduction of unwholesome, unskillful actions. You know, so we want to just play with, okay, we need a lot of support in this. You know, the, the power of greed and hatred and delusion, these are strongly habituated you know, in all of our minds. And in, in fact, enlightenment means the uprooting of those unwholesome roots. So we need all the help we can get. It's, it's like taking the precepts and being mindful, knowing what's skillful and unskillful, and being aware of what's arising in the moment, and reflecting on these components, you know, the delusion and the restlessness and this otapa, you know, to, to help us in this whole path of purification. And as we do this, and as we practice, and again, distinguish between guilt and wise remorse, and we're purifying our minds, that then leads to just a mind and a heart and a life that is much more spacious, much more open, much more peaceful, much more conducive to the practice of generosity, to the practice of love, to the seeing of impermanence, you know, to the letting go of attachment. 
And so I think it's just helpful to really reflect on and practice and understand this interplay of ethics and mindfulness and wisdom and understanding. So why don't we take a little break, maybe 10, 12 minutes, and come back. And then if you have questions or things you'd like to discuss, we can have time for that. Thank you. So if you have any questions or comments, things you'd like to discuss. Uh, You were mentioning you had done a retreat with environmental activists, and you talked about their burnout. Their burnout was related to having acted out of anger. You mentioned that the environmental activists acted out of anger rather than compassion. Oh. First, I, I want to make clear, it's, I didn't mean to suggest that they were only acting out of anger, you know, because these were really good people, you know, and I'm sure there was a lot of compassion there too, but anger was in there, you know, kind of that. Um, the, co- the, the condition or the, the, the causal condition for compassion to arise is our willingness to come close to suffering. And it's very interesting to really undertake this as a practice just in the course of our daily lives. You know, when we come across a situation of suffering, you know, maybe it's, you know, seeing a homeless person on the street or some injustice or whatever, you know. What, what is the response in our hearts to that? And I've just noticed in myself there's a wide range of response. Sometimes I can really open to it and come close to it and let it in. And when I can do that, the compassion is the compassion is right there. At other times, I just don't want to deal with it. You know, it's and then when I when I really look at that, I can see how that's just a closing off. I saw this a lot and I've mentioned this in different talks. This first became apparent to me in my time in India uh, with the dogs in India, which are just, they're in a, most of them are in just terrible, pitiful state, you know, starving and mangy and terrible. Uh, and so I, you know, maybe was with friends at a tea shop, a chai shop, and the dogs would be all around. And, and there were times when I could really see the suffering so clearly and, and you know, so I'd give them a little food or whatever. And at other times, I just want to have my tea. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to let it in. And so that whole range of response is there, but it becomes very obvious that compassion comes when we're willing to let the suffering in. And so with, in whatever you know, arena we're engaged in with climate change, there are so many there are so many manifestations of the suffering that that is causing and will cause you know just i mean a few of the the most dramatic ones you know reading those stories of uh 
those specific island nations that you know the the ocean levels rise not very far and those countries are gone you know and just what that means for there there are people living there uh, so it's just one one tiny example of of many so it's it it's that practice of letting in of of coming close to the suffering and i think you'll see that the compassion really really flows from that as well as health professions and mental health often talk about this idea of compassion fatigue when you um, you know when your job requires you to let in the suffering of others and that's the only way you can work effectively um, how do you feel that kind of balance with self-compassion right, right. and burnout from that aspect right uh, can everybody hear the question yes um I think you can approach that from two sides. One is that we need to include ourselves in the field of compassion. You know, and so when we feel that we're really at the limit of our energetic reservoir, that we see that in ourselves and we see okay, I, I need some self-compassion here and to take some time to rejuvenate and not to override that understanding because it makes possible uh, the further work. So just a, a tiny little example of how I've put that into practice. You know, when I'm teaching retreats and you know, we have a schedule of interviews where people... You know, we talk about their meditation. But very often, people will come up just as I'm walking, you know, to the dining room or someplace. Oh, can I just speak to you for two minutes? And of course, it's never two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And most of the time, you know, fine, you engage. But there are times when either I'm too busy or I'm really too tired or whatever. And it became a very interesting practice for me to find the way of honoring that. And the, the way that really works best for me is not now. You know, let's, let's do it at some, at some other time. So it wasn't a no, it wasn't a closing off to it, but this is not a good time. And so that's a very, a very small example of how we can take care of ourselves without closing off to a perceived need in somebody. There's another aspect which is kind of more subtle and could be a very interesting uh, investigation. You know, with all these, uh, the four Brahma-Vihara states of, you know, of loving-kindness and compassion and empathetic joy and equanimity, each one has what is called a near enemy, which is a state that looks like it but is not it and is unwholesome. So, for example, the near enemy of loving-kindness is attachment. So often these two get mixed up. We we often are attached to the people we love, and we're not seeing the two different feelings. The near enemy of compassion is sorrow. 
And sorrow can easily come up in the face of suffering. You know, when we, when we are allowing ourselves to come close to it, it's not an unnatural emotion to arise, to feel sorrow about the situation. But when we really, you know, investigate deeply and clearly, and this is pointed out in the, in the Buddhist psychology, which uh, suggested the investigation, that in sorrow there is a component of aversion to the suffering, and in compassion there is no aversion. And so the compassion, what did you call it, compassion burnout, or may be happening because there's a mixture, which is quite natural, but worth looking at, you know, of sorrow in the face of the suffering that you're encountering. It's very interesting in doing compassion meditation, you know, just like we can do loving kindness meditation, the way one undertakes that as a meditative practice is that you think or you, you visualize a person in a huge amount of suffering but, because that's going to evoke the most compassion. So you're visualizing this person in this situation of suffering and the phrase that's being used is, may you be free of suffering. Right? So that's the phrase of compassion. It's very interesting doing that practice somewhat intensively. So you're right there with the suffering. You know, it's very vivid in one's mind. You're expressing this wish, may you be free of, may you be free of the suffering. The feeling of compassion is uplifting as opposed to the feeling of sorrow, which can be overwhelming. You know, and it's just, it's extremely interesting to begin to, what's the phrase, to parse out, is that an expression? <laughs> to, you know, to, to distinguish these two states which can look alike, but are actually quite different. So in both ways, it's taking care of oneself, but also examining what actually is the state that we're experiencing. Could you give the other two near enemies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, very helpful? so the near enemy of um, mudita, that, that empathetic joy, uh, is a kind of uh, excitement. You know, you might say a delighted excitement. You know, where, where, there's, a, where there's some agitation in the mind around it. Uh, or you could say an agitated exuberance, where it's not just the good feeling, but like that. Um, and the, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. You know, where in equanimity the mind is very impartial, but it's connected. Whereas indifference, you know, there may be an evenness of mind, but it's a disconnect. So it's really quite a different state. Closer. So I had a quick question. I'm new to this. I'm wrenching my head around it. And um, I often hear uh, my relations quickly call the mind into more of a natural state. Um, I'm not sure what exactly that means because 
the way to sort of rid of sort of the artificial distractions of modern life. Or another way of saying this, the primitive cultures hunter gatherers that are going around 14 hours a day in what our minds have sort of evolved to be. Do they need meditation or do these types of things? Or is that the is that the type of mindset that this is trying to appease? <laughs> Okay, first, uh, um, I would be, um, uh, what say? just a little uh, careful about that phrase, a natural state, because that can mean different things. So there is a technical meaning of that phrase in certain Buddhist traditions, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. I think you're using it in a more colloquial way. And in that way, it's all natural. I mean, <laughs> the agitation of mind is natural because it's arising in nature. You know, this is the nature of our minds in certain circumstances. So it's, n it's not so much, you know, thinking of one as being a natural state and one not. It's more a question of seeing what what states of mind are conducive to happiness, to well-being, right? And we see that calm is one of them, cal just calming the mind, being more present. In terms of the hunter-gatherer example, uh, of course, I can't remember that far back. <laughs> but... but there is a very important distinction between being present and being mindful. Because often people can think that they're synonymous. So I like to use the example of uh, what I call black lab consciousness. So are you familiar with the, the, the dogs, the black labs, the golden retriever? You know, I like, I like those particular things. They're so playful and friendly, and you can have so much fun with them. Um, but when you watch them, you know, especially maybe not in the city, but certainly out in the country, and they're out. <laughs> they are totally present. They are in the present moment. You know, mostly with in the in the realm of scent and smell. So they're totally present, but they don't look very mindful to me. <laughs> Now, this may be a projection, but... <laughs> so, being present is one of the conditions for being mindful, but mindfulness is something more than being present. So, it's that meta-quality, M-E-T-A, of being in the moment and being knowing that we're in the moment, being aware of what we're experiencing, right? Uh, so again, I don't, I don't know, you know, the primitive people in the hunter-gatherer time, I don't really know what their mind states were like, but it's possible that they were very much in the present, but not necessarily being mindful. Or maybe they were, but they don't necessarily go together. Wait, wait for the mic, I think.
since I started practicing meditation, um, I found myself I could become more mindful, um, more not more mindful, but more aware of the things, more of my motivations, the things I want to say, and the things that I share. Sometimes I find that very overbearing, like in um, everyday life. And um, it was like, the simple be simple, it's like I want to I know, like, my mind, I know it's like too much sugar, it's not good for me. That I want to eat another cookie today. It's like in my mind, I know, like, I'm very, very clear. Like, this, this part of my mind saying, don't do it, it's not good. You know, you're just, you know, giving in to your, your craving. And this other side of my mind, like, I just want to be present and eat a cookie and not Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I think we all... <laughs> we all have those cookies, <laughs> you know, in one way or another. Um, so I think, I, I think what you just said is, is the point to explore what's the balance, right? And so there are different components of finding the balance, some of which already in there. For example, first step is really knowing, as I said in the talk, okay, is this helpful or not helpful? So at least we have that base of understanding. Then you're about to do something which you know is not that helpful, but you just want to do it anyway. I think there are two components of that. One is assessing how, how harmful is it going to be. Because some things, they may not be the best thing, but they're really not a huge deal. Right? And so there's really more scope for a little more leeway you know, in that. Um, if something we know is really harmful, then it's good to be a little, one might say, stricter with oneself, because you know the consequences of this are really not good, either for oneself or others. Uh, so I think it's kind of bringing that assessment to the situation. It's also, you know, in undertaking the spiritual practice, a really important component is having a sense of humor about our minds. You know, it's essential. <laughs> There's one, one meditator in, in one interview once came into the interview, you know, it'd be an unmeditation retreat and, and watching their minds, you know. And the comment was, you know, I've really discovered that the mind has no pride. <laughs> Meaning it, it'll do anything and produce anything. So if we, if we have enough mindfulness, again, to assess, 
okay, is this really something that's not good and I need to refrain from? Is this, okay, no, it's not good, but it's, it's not that much of a problem. You know, we give ourselves a little more leeway. And I think that's, that's how we navigate through our lives. Um, yes, so it's, it's seeing what you're seeing, but with a lighter heart. You know, so, so I, I think the fact of your discernment is good. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't suggest being less discerning, but how you're relating to what you're seeing, I think that yeah, there, there could be there could be a uh, a bit of lightness with it, and you're, you're testing out. Okay, so you do it. You have the cookie. Was it basically okay, or not? Yeah. Yes. 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 Now these are great questions. Um, so in terms of the first question of people acting but without real awareness of the consequences of their actions, there is a there are kind of mind states which in the teachings, which are associated with mindfulness, it's called clear comprehension. So that's, it's kind of like an aspect of mindfulness. And part of clear comprehension is precisely understanding that there are consequences to the action. And the reflection, is this, is this useful? Is this good? Is this skillful or not? So it may be that the people you're referring to have not developed that sense of clear comprehension. The more one practices mindfulness, if we're paying attention to the moment and successive moments, then we begin to see the consequences. You know, you do something and then maybe you say some harsh words. And if we're, if we're staying mindful, then we might feel, oh, this, this didn't feel good. And so we're actually learning the consequence of that action. So this, this aspect of clear comprehension is really important, and it's, it's precisely what you're talking about, seeing the consequences. What was the second? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I remember. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's 
funny. The, the second, the first often pushes out. The, um, one of the most amazing discoveries of meditative practice is that the mind contains everything. You know, everything we've done, all the impressions, it's all in there. Even if we're not aware that it's in there. I mean, to me, this has been one of the most fascinating discoveries about the nature of the mind. You know, I think, of course, you're involved in meditation, so you probably have considered this, but I think most people never stop to really reflect on, well, what exactly is the mind? You know, we're just, we're just living our lives, but not necessarily understanding what is this phenomenon that we call mind? You know? And so in meditation, as we're becoming more mindful of our internal processes, just the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness, and seeing that all of these impressions, you know, when the mind becomes a little more still and we have more space inside, it all comes up. Often in the time of the action, we haven't been mindful. So we're not aware at that time of how it makes us feel. But when it comes up in meditation, at that time, our minds are in a place of awareness and not particularly defensive. So it's like we're allowing all these impressions to surface. But that's part of the purifying process. You know, they come as kind of an expression I use for myself is, okay, up and out, up and out, up and out. If we can be with those impressions without reactivity. So it's, it's a fascinating exploration of mind. And, and the Buddha talking about mind is the forerunner of all things. Everything, everything we do is a manifestation of something going on in our minds. So... Thank you. You were talking about right speech before, and you mentioned uh, in, in the Eightfold Path, right speech would, would concern itself with avoidance of slander or harsh language or mm-hmm. use of language and so forth. And you mentioned uh, part of something. You said something, and you used that humorous word, in, which I forget. Uh, and you said something, and then you caught yourself, and you said, well, that's absolutely meaningless, useless comment. And the point of it was just to say, hi, I'm here. Well, it occurs to me sometimes that you're talking about humor. Um, it seems there's got to be a place for humor in right, the right speech area. Um, I, I was in the theater, and I think, well, without people like Oscar Wilde or Noah Coward or something, the, the Nary Marks would not pass the bar. The, the Buddhist bar, and if they had been Buddhist, they would never have said, they would have never written a thing. You know, Oscar Watt was talking to someone, and he said something very clever, and his friend said, well, Oscar, I wish I had thought of that. And Oscar said, you will. And that kind of remark is, may not pass the bar of being wholesome, useful, wholesome, but in, in human intercourse, 
seems to be there has to be a place for speech that would not necessarily fit the Buddhist bar. It could include, could, could include humor or gentle teasing or some kind of sarcasm. If it's not, if it's not intended to hurt people, even that would be the bar. Yes. In other words, you can be teasing and, and humorous and it would not, it might be considered, quote, idle chatter, like that remark that you made that you cited, but as long as it passes the bar of not being hurtful, uh, I would think that uh, I would think that any kind of jokes or humor or gentle teasing or, as I say, even even bad language might be acceptable if it if it engenders a kind of good feeling or or bonhomie or friendliness yeah, 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 yeah. among the company. Yeah. No, I. I mean, there were there were a number of laughs this afternoon. <laughs> you know, so I hope it's clear that uh, I think that humor does play an important role and is important. And having a sense of humor, both about situations and most particularly about ourselves, you know, is really helpful. And so I would say, in response to that, similar to the last question, first, it really is discerning what the motive is because we can often delude ourselves, you know, and we think we're just being funny, but it's a zinger, you know, and so that takes quite a bit of awareness. Um, sometimes you men, you mentioned Oscar Wilde, I mean, sometimes there was a lot of wisdom in his humor, you know, so there's, there can be that component in it. And sometimes it may be a bit of some papalapa. And it's just like, just like the other question. I think we can hold it lightly. You know, and so sometimes we just engage in it, as we all do, you know, at different times. Maybe for the good feeling that we're trying to engender. But the example I was thinking of had no redeeming value. <laughs> I mean, it was just completely useless. Uh, but I could, I could imagine, you know, situations that you're referring to where it seems fine and we don't have to kind of come down in some heavy way. At the same time, understanding what this particular aspect of the teaching is about and just exploring, well, are there places where we might refrain and other places not, where, where you do engage? So I would hold it lightly, but not dismiss it as an area of investigation. Yeah, you know, the, we can have fun in all this. <laughs> you know, it's, the, the whole practice is really one of light, as I said, it's one of lightening up. Uh, and at the same time, really paying attention. You know, are we doing harmful things or not harmful things? Right, Mike. I think that um, you know humor is just an interesting uh, analog to what we've been doing, what we did together at the beginning, because humor can build bridges, and it's a shared connection. So just as we meditated together, it becomes more than just you, more than the sum of the individual parts. So I think 
Like humor can be a value, of course, the caveat being not at some any other yeah. individual's expense. And there are probably other things as yeah. well. No, exactly. And, you know, many of the great teachers, of course, a lot is culturally conditioned, you know, of what's appropriate and not, but, I mean, a lot of the great and the person who's coming to mind right at the moment is, you know, the Dalai Lama. He's kind of bubbling with good humor. <laughs> so a lot, of, a lot of the really great teachers have that quality. Hello. Um, so I have a question going back to sympathy and, and compassion. And in my practice, there's, there seems to be some, um, I, I guess I've come to some understanding of maybe that there's a sense of building capacity. And um, so what I'm confused about um, is this sense of really feeling fully with mindfulness uh, and clear comprehension, maybe, what, what's arising, for instance, with anger or with uh, or compassion, and, uh, and, and being able to uh, lighten up versus holding, you know, building capacity. So, yeah, it's kind of this fine line for me about uh, being open-hearted toward myself and others, and and um, and being able to hold that with lightness or with I don't yeah I don't know. Do you know what I'm asking? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, 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 there's some there's a, there's this balance that I I haven't quite uh, you know, I'm not clear about around this sense of building capacity versus the sense of uh, open-hearted, uh, allowing when you sense of freedom. When you say building capacity, capacity for what? To feel any of the emotions. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, to feel the fullness of my feelings. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the confusion there is, is, is this a... Um, is a sense of uh, freedom versus toleration, I guess, in some way. Toleration or um, mm -hmm. uh, the capacity of toleration. Oh, well, well, I think that's, that's an interesting distinction. And um, mindfulness really means the ability to open fully to what we're experiencing. And there is um, a process of growing capacity. And it's very analogous to, um, you know, when people start meditation and they're sitting after some time, they very commonly will feel some discomfort or pain in the body. And I remember myself in the beginning, you know, a little bit of pain, it was, it was too much. It was too intense. And I had to shift position. And over the years of practice, the capacity to be with the pain grew as the mind got more settled and more concentrated, more understanding. Oh, it's okay to feel this, right? And and so at that point, it wasn't tolerating it, you know, which is kind of a kind of a resistance. 
but more, can I open to it? Well, emotions are exactly the same way, you know, with unpleasant emotions specifically. But also sometimes it happens with pleasant ones. We all have a capacity at a particular time. So I worked a lot, many years, uh, with the feeling of fear. Strong, strong fear, you know, would be coming up. There were times in my meditation where I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. So it was just primal, it was, you know, it was completely irrational. And there was nothing there to be afraid of, but that's what the emotion it was just coming up. And for years in my practice, I'd be noting it and fear, 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 but it really fell locked in. It took a long time to drop into the place where, and it was a particular moment, and I've told this story many times, where in a moment I was doing walking meditation, all this fear was coming up, and there was a shift which was expressed in the thought, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And in all those years, that was the first moment of acceptance. You know, before I had recognized it, but I, had not, I was always watching it in order for it to go away. So it took, it took all of that practice to come to the place of having the capacity to hold it, to feel it, to be open, that it's okay to feel it. So this is very much part of the meditative practice. Uh, and just as with physical pain, it's often a process. You know, we can hold this much. So I'll just give you another image I have of enlightenment. Uh, you know, so one is just getting lighter and lighter and lighter. The other image that I have is we all have a comfort zone of experience. You know, so whether it's emotions or in the body or experience in the world, we're okay with this. You know, but we get to the edge and uh, we feel uncomfortable. So our meditation practice, and not only meditation on the cushion, but meditation in life, is we get to the edge of where we feel uneasy, uncomfortable. Take a deep breath and relax a bit. Okay, this is okay which is what I finally was able to do with the fear. Oh, this is okay. You know, so our comfort zone gets bigger and bigger and wider. So my imagination of the Buddha mind is the mind without boundaries. If there's no boundaries at all, there's no fear. Whatever's arising is okay. You know, and so that's, that's the process. Yeah. Well, I, th I 
I think it's both. And I think it's seeing there are some situations where maybe we can remedy in some way or acknowledge to the person. And sometimes we can't. You know, the thing happened and it's gone and there's no opportunity, you could say, to make amends in one way or another. And so then just is that process of seeing, of, of learning from it. But recently, I, a few years ago, uh, I went to my 50th high school reunion. And in, in the course of, I hadn't seen most of these people for 50 years. But in the many years of my meditation, there were incidents that had come up very strongly that I really regretted. You know, but I, so I had worked with them internally, but in the situation of the 50th reunion, I had the opportunity to actually go back to some of the people and say, you know, do you remember, do you remember that? And it was interesting. One of them had no recollection at all, (laughs) but the other, the other person really did remember it over all those years. So in that, in that situation, there was an opportunity to say, you know, I'm really sorry about that. I, I was not a very good thing to do. So it's just to see, you know, when when action is possible and when it's not possible. All the way in the back. talks about passing someone homeless or things like that, or Starbucks, you know, something like that where, you know, I'm constantly aware of just dumb luck sometimes. So how do you reconcile being compassionate and kind of dealing with that hurtful stuff or whatever you want to call that? I missed the last le- thing you just oh, said. Well, well, I I think it can. One is to see first to see that guilt is completely counterproductive. You know, it's not a wholesome statement. So you're you're just adding to your mind stream more unwholesomeness and. And not only is it painful in the moment, but you are strengthening that wrong view of self, you know, which is so key to the Buddhist understanding. And so just to really see that, that when you're feeling guilty, that's what's happening. I think the appreciation of, you know, your good fortune and this has come up a lot for, for many of us in recent years, you know, at IMS and here at New York Insight also, uh, really been undertaking a lot of work of understanding diversity and racism and really trying to uh, get some understanding behind all that. And part of that, uh, which has been a huge learning, I mean, just steep learning curve about all this, is just the whole notion of white privilege, you know, which when even first hearing that phrase, it sets off, I didn't even like hearing, hearing the term, 
you know, just. But in coming to understand more the dynamics of you know our society, one really sees that that's that's a fact, you know, and we can learn from it. So it's not to feel guilty about that because that's just how it is. But if we acknowledge, you know, and understand it, then that can be the source of some uh, motivation for wise action and compassionate action and addressing the injustices. You know, so instead of going to guilt, which is totally useless, it's like you see that, you see that aspect, oh yeah, this is, this is how it is. What can I do to, you know, to be of help in this whole situation? So it's a very different uh, mindset and very inspiring. You know, it's uplifting rather than contracting. You a startup founder. And in a lot of words, startup is is to want very badly something that doesn't exist. So you chase after something. And you don't want failure. Just because you don't want to fail for some reason. And so the way I sort of put up with it is almost split brain where I use the mindfulness to sort of heal on a daily basis or so every day in the morning. Closer to that. Uh, I use the mindfulness as a as a tonic, almost as a way to heal. Um and then just do what I have to during the day. But what's a better way to integrate mm-hmm. to? Um, yeah. No, that, that's an important question of, you know, where does, is there a place for ambition, you know, and striving, you know, for something in this, in this arena? Uh, for me, a very useful distinction, uh, as you can tell, my mind likes distinctions. You know, because it kind of lends clarity to what actually is going on. Um, there's a there's a interesting discernment between expectation and aspiration. You know, and so aspiration, I think, is a really great thing, and it's especially depending on what the aspiration is for. But you know, if it feels like some good thing, and I mean, we're all here because we aspire to. You know, free our minds. So that aspiration actually f- fuels good effort. It gets problematic when the mind gets caught in expectation and attachment to the expectation, you know, of a result. Because as we all know, we can have the best aspirations in the world and the most wholesome mind states, but whether a course of action is successful or not depends on so many things which are outside of our control. You know, so we can, we can do the best we can with the best motivation, and still the world may not be uh, contributing. <laughs> yeah. So to the degree we're attached to the outcome, you're going to suffer to the degree that you give it, you know, you, you do it full-heartedly, understanding this. So then you just, you give your best effort, but you're easeful 
at least more useful with how it turns out and able then to take the next steps. It's just so interesting how our minds are attached to suffering. You know, and I've, I've seen this so often in, in my life and in meditation. There was one retreat. Before I entered the retreat, something had happened which was very disturbing to my mind. So on the retreat, it was coming up a lot. And I could watch my mind get lost in the whole story and really suffering. And then it would come out of it and I'd just be in an open place of ease and open awareness. And this cycled over and over again. And at a certain point, I said, Joseph, suffering, ease. Oh, let's suffer. <laughs> yeah, I could, see the, I could see that habituation of the mind just to get caught again. It doesn't make sense, but it's, it's the habit of mind. So I think it's very instructive if we're paying attention. Does that attachment to results, what does it do for you? You know, it, it just causes suffering. Uh, but not to confuse that with not having aspiration. Yes. Oh, close, close. Uh, yeah. I'm very interested in your um, discussion of mindfulness with respect to ethics, because particularly since so many people are really getting more and more involved in mindfulness, um, and, to, and it's got a, an incredible sort of opportunity here from the ethical perspective, because we're living in a society where people aren't necessarily very ethical. But then you ask for a room, and you ask most people, like, probably everybody, even people who do really, really bad stuff, they consider themselves ethical people. Everybody does. So what beyond the and the uh, and the obvious, which is you know, kill, um, you know, how do you um, how do you sort of create ethics when everybody thinks they're ethical when perhaps for you they're not, really they wouldn't be. Everybody has a different definition of what it is. Well I think that that's where um, the framework provided in many spiritual traditions, but, but we're speaking now in terms of the Buddhist tradition, but it's not unique to Buddhism. For example, the framework of the five precepts. Sort of understanding that these actions are unethical. So as we're doing them, right, we have that external reference point, so it's not just a subjective feeling, oh, I feel ethical killing this being. No, because, because we have an understanding from an external reference point, killing or stealing is unethical. It's something to refrain from. You know? And so there's the framework of the five precepts. There's, there's a larger framework where the Buddha talked of ten unwholesome actions. Right? And he just laid this out, and so he's saying... Okay, these are, that's like a, you know, you go to a beach and you see a sign, uh, caution, dangerous undertow, right? The sign is telling you there's some danger there, there's some harm there. So these frameworks are like that sign. They're saying these actions, be careful, these are harmful actions. 
So they're reminded to us from the outside, not, not from our subjective sense. They're reminded, pay attention here, wake up. And we can then investigate for ourselves if we have the interest. But that's why these frameworks are so helpful and why you know, we might formally take the precepts or really learn about the ten unwholesome actions because they remind us, no, this action is not good. No. Okay, last question. Oh, is somebody, did somebody not ask a question have any? Success! Oh, oh, right there, behind the pillar. Just, just one, one story of Munindraji, my first teacher. He had boundless, boundless energy. We took him to a museum in D.C., I think the Aerospace Museum or something. He went to every single exhibit, reading every single <laughs> caption. I was exhausted. I, I laid down on one of the benches, and, you know, and he was still going around. So in one teaching he gave, this was out in California, he started talking and giving Dharma talk. He went on talking till the last person had left. <laughs> I'm not Munindra. <laughs> yeah, uh, getting back to the question of like ethics, you know, you brought up both probably, uh, and most of us think of ourselves as ethical people, and yeah, sure, you know, I don't kill people, I don't steal, I don't hit people, yeah. but it seems to me that the biggest problems like us would have in our own lives are with dealing with the people who are closest to us, our families, our friends, and I can't say that I never tell a lie to anyone or hold back the truth from someone. And I know that my ex-wife, one of the reasons we broke up was because she was constantly lying. And uh, we were hurting each other in that relationship. And I know that in some of my closest friendships, you say things to each other that are hurtful. And that also that we heard ourselves, yeah, yeah. the Dalai Lama is always talking about how amazed he is by how Westerners have such low self-esteem and sometimes even talk about hating themselves, yeah, yeah. things we do to hurt ourselves. And it's on that level that it seems that mindfulness in that sense and, and ethics in a more yeah, yeah. personal sense is a more difficult question. I'm still trying after 64 years on the planet to understand myself and understand the way that you know I interact with the people who are closest to me. I wonder if you could say something about that. Oh, I think I think the point you make is is really important. That it, it's not just you might say the big obvious actions, you know, of not killing and not stealing. It it is in the way we're relating to each other and the speech that we use, and uh, and it's precisely in that area that we really see the interplay of ethics and mindfulness. If you're not mindful of your speech if you're not mindful of the motivation behind your actions, then you are going to be playing out these patterns which cause suffering. To the degree that 
the mindfulness is growing in us, right? That's why I say it. it provides that pivotal place of choice. When we're about to do something and if we're mindful, no, this, this is hurtful. You know, this, that gives us the possibility of refraining. But it's a practice and it's not to assume that just by understanding this principle, you're going to be able to do it perfectly. So it's not to get caught in self-hatred about our lapses, which is just another unwholesome mind state, but it is to be committed to the practice of it, knowing that we'll mess up a lot of times. And so just, this is, this is a good closing line. It's in terms of how we can undertake this with the proper frame of reference. It's a line from a poem by W.H. Auden, where he says, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) So it's just that acknowledgement. You know, we're all in this together. We all have this mix. But if we're committed, you know, to the principle of non-harming, and we understand that both this interplay of ethics and mindfulness is what supports us in this, this is our practice, and that's why it's called practice. So thank you. Um, So we have a little time. If any of you wanted your T-shirt signed (laughs) or books, just please, if you come up with anything to sign... Please tell me your name, even if we have been friends for 40 years, even if we've been married. (laughs) Tell me your name, because I've been in situations where the mind blanks on names of people I know really well, and it's very embarrassing. (laughs) Thank you.